You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station. Let's hope you've got your subscription up to date. Uh, We were trying to get people to uh, subscribe over the last few weeks uh, and hopefully your name is on our list. Uh, If not, you can still do it. You can do it any time in the year, of course. And uh, I'll remind you that the unwaged concession pension is $40, waged is $80, Band organisation 150 and Solidarity 300. And that is the best ticket in town. I know the CFMEU like to say that their membership is the best ticket in town. But if it's ideas you're after, then 3CR is it. Uh, Today we're going to, of course, uh, touch base with uh, what's been going on in the Palestine uh, support Area Last week there was, of course, the Sunday rally and we're going to hear from John Shipton who was uh, in town. He, of course, is the father of Julian Assange and it was fascinating because he opened the rally in Melbourne and uh, instead of talking about Julian, which, of course, is really at the top of the list of things to be concerned about because the English were uh, going through their paces on the 21st, looking at the extradition order that the Americans are desirous of for Julian Assange. Um, But uh, he spoke from the heart in support of the people who are being corralled by the Israeli forces into Rafah. Millions of people are ready for uh, a genocidal assault. So we hear from John Shipton and we also hear from Ahmed Abbas who uh, outlines what's actually happening on the ground uh, for our uh, certain knowledge that that a genocide is afoot. Uh, It's very reminiscent of what happened to the Tamils in Sri Lanka with the world averting their eyes. Uh, And... um, We uh, go to the Julian Assange visual, which was held on uh, outside the British consulate on the 20th and through to the 21st. On a Wednesday, I went down and I had a yarn with some people who had spent the night there. Uh, We uh, hear from, we're going to uh, the Cunahan Gallery. and what's on there at the moment, uh, that is in Brunswick on Sydney Road. Uh, we're going to speak to Kimber Thompson, who is the curator of an exhibition called Future River, When the Past Flows. 
there are indigenous uh, artists uh, displaying their art there. And we're going to get a word from Peter Clancy, who is one of those artists. It sounds it's an exhibition in partnership with the Coonahan Gallery, Merrybick City Council, and uh, the Black Dot Gallery. Kimber Thompson is secure is the founding member of the Black Dot Gallery, which is aims to uh, um, well, its purpose is to. Uh, Oh, well, we'll find out more about it, but it's about uh, showcasing Indigenous art. Uh, the, this particular exhibition is um, an, is uh, going to include photography, performance art, talks, etc. And it's about um, looking at the how the city um, tries to erase the Indigenous past. Fascinating stuff. But anyway, we'll talk to them later on. Um, this is the week that was is on, and we go to the Deaths in Custody rally held to commemorate the 20th year anniversary of the death of T.J. Hickey. A very sombre affair, especially as we're coming to the end of the um, uh, latest um, investigation into a death in custody, Joshua Kerr. Um, terrible stuff. And uh, it goes then on to uh, a new uh, coronial inquest into Heather Kelkaret, which starts on the 29th of April. Uh, the uh, coroner's court, you can go online Monday the 26th of February on 10am. Uh, Vels, you can get the link uh, to... There's a um, beginning phase of that particular coronial uh, inquest uh, setting up the parameters of what they're going to be looking at. Um, it just never, never ends. Um, yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Uh, and um, let's let's be cheered by something else. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR. Uh, if you were down outside the town hall on uh, in Swanston Street in Melbourne on uh, Tuesday, you would have been amongst a group of people, around 200 people, who were waiting outside to hear uh, the outcome of a motion being put by the the first uh, uh, Arab descent uh, councillor at, at Melbourne Council uh, to call for a support for Palestine and a ceasefire. Um, an appalling ca- uh, cowardness of the Melbourne City Council voted 
the motion down, calling for the ceasefire in Gaza, six votes to five. Predominant reasoning because it would be divisive and not council business to make statements about foreign affairs. And of course, it, this is, shows gross hypocrisy on the part of those who took this view since last year the Melbourne City Council voted unanimously to withdraw from a sister city relationship with Petersburg in response to Russian invasion into the Ukraine. And on October the 10th, the council projected the Israeli flag on the exterior of Melbourne Town Hall. Now, um, it, it was a bit, it was deeply disturbing to come to the conclusion that uh, divisiveness uh, versus genocide uh, didn't actually play its part in their reasoning, except for the five who voted for it. The casting vote was given by the um, uh, Labor councillor, Reese. Uh, who was sitting in for Sally Cap, the uh, mayor, who was on leave and obviously didn't want her face connected to the vote. Uh, we're going to go now to jo hear John Shipton, who was speaking at the uh, 18th of February rally at the State Library in support of Palestinian, Palestinians who were being corralled in a genocidal attack by the Israeli army. Just a wonderful, wonderful to see you all here. Just wonderful. Let's together address some serious subjects. First of all, as a man, the prime duty of a man is to defend the children and their mothers. As a man, I ask all of those children destroyed in Gaza and their mothers, I ask for their forgiveness, for my words not being compelling enough, for my arms not being strong enough, for my intellect not being deep enough, to defend their sweet lives and their giggles and their happiness. Offences against the children cannot be forgiven and cannot be undone. What has been committed in Gaza can never ever be undone. It's a stain that will remain all through history and repeated over and over again. The children, the mothers of Gaza destroyed. What results from soil watered by the blood of children? What grows in that soil? This is a question we must address. What grows in the soil, soil of culture, that's watered by the blood of children, fertilized by the bodies of children, 
what grows in that culture, incandescent rage, silent, sinking into the very depths of its culture, looking for a place to find its expression. It won't rest until justice has been done to the spirit of those children and mothers. Take that with you into your heart and just have a moment's silence for those little kids. Next, we address the fact of the United States and its allies attempt to destroy the Ummah, the Islamic civilization over the last 30 years. One invasion after the other, the destruction of Afghanistan, the destruction of Iraq. A gentleman here, Gideon Polya, who specializes in excess deaths, says that the United States in the last 21 years has directly caused six or seven million deaths. Destroyed seven and a half countries. Let's name them. Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Sudan, Libya, Syria, wrecked, ruined countries. 38 million refugees. Many of the faces I hear, I see before me today, are those refugees. 38 million of them. Why do they come here? Because their communities have been smashed beyond recognition their children put upon, their wives, their mothers and fathers, their entire families. These are important things to absorb into the understanding and the spirit of Australia. For it's been absorbed as rage, incandescent, waiting for its opportunity to right the wrongs throughout West Asia, which we, in our previous ignorance, used to call the Middle East. One last sentence. The Gazans. We can say of the Gazans, that their spirit, a stronger spirit, has laid its hand on the battlefield. And we can acknowledge the magnificent courage of the mothers. I see videos of them putting up lines. They can't wash their clothes, so they hang them up in the sun to remove the parasite such courage to distribute what little food is left 
among the children. To take that burden upon yourself, just imagine to having to divide up a little bit of bread among the kids and go without yourself, knowing that if you weaken, all the children die. That's a minute-to-minute -minute event in Gaza. We acknowledge the courage of the fighters in Gaza. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridwar Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Amin Abbas is a Palestinian activist and a founding member and chair of Australian Foundation for Palestinian Children, Olive Kids, and a former chair of Palestinian Community Association of Victoria and occasional writer for Palestine. Welcome Amin Abbas, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'd like to also start by acknowledging a beautiful and resilient people. The owners of the land in which we stand and protest, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respect to their elders past and present. This is unceded land and so too my homeland, Palestine. Ours is a shared struggle and we will forever be grateful to the solidarity and camaraderie. I'd like to also acknowledge all of you here, wonderful humans, here every single Sunday. Many people have been here most Sundays since it started. Put your hand up. How amazing are these people? We're here chanting for peace, love, human rights and freedom. Never hate, violence, anti-Semitism, or racism. And it is because all of you, and people like you, one of these Sundays soon, we will be here, not to mourn our dead, camp the children we lost, the hospitals hit, or war crimes committed. We will be here to celebrate our free Palestine. Now raise your hand if you know about Olive Kids. Uh, fair few. Olive Kids is an Australian charity that is 100% volunteering and focusing on Palestinian children. In 15 years, we supported orphan children when Israel left us with thousands, and many, many thousands today. We supplied solar for the orphanage when Israel turned the power on for only four hours a day, zero hours today. We supported university scholarships for girls when they couldn't afford it under the suffocating siege. And there's no education in Gaza today. We supported medical aid to a hospital when the health system was crumbling and it does not exist today. We provided prosthetics when snipers were shooting kids in their legs. Today, 10 children lose a limb every single day. 
We were proud of our work, but today the orphanage is leveled. We lost some children and we don't know the whereabouts of the rest. The university also leveled, like every other university in Gaza. The hospital hit by airstrikes, also like every other hospital in Gaza. Our work is now shrunk to Rafah. Just as a reminder that Gaza's two and a half million people lived in 365 kilometers before this whole thing started. This is an area less than 4% of Melbourne. Until Israel squeezed them to the southern half. Then again, this led them to Rafah. Today we have one and a half million suffocating in a mere 64 square kilometers. This is the size of the Melbourne CBD. A sea of tents, many displaced for eight or nine times. I could hear the constant, constant bombing every time I speak to our people in Rafah this week. A safe zone, they said, and now evacuate to nowhere. They are told, we're coming for you. Every Sunday, we call out the war crimes of the preceding week. Naively thinking that brutality can't go further than it does week after week. Unhindered by UN resolutions, the ICJ ruling, statements from friends like the one by our PM on Thursday, maybe we should remind our PM when a friend commits a crimes time to end the friendship, not send letters. <laughs> Sympathies, concern and statements is all our government does. Should we accept this? No. We must demand action and consequences, not statements, not sympathies. Australia must end support for a genocidal state, end arms export, end trade, and sever diplomatic relations now. We must reinstate funding for Ottawa now. And we must investigate and charge war criminals, including Australians, participating in this genocide now. My friends, time to call all you members of parliament. Ask your council to pass motions. Educate your family, friends, neighbors. Bring them here next Sunday. Will we stop coming? Because the killing has not stopped. As for those who advocated for genocide, we will remember you. And those who stayed silent, we shall remember you too, because you are just as complicit. My friends, stand tall and proud, because soon when we are free, you'll say, I was there. Every Sunday, I stood for justice. Thank you.
stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR and uh, we're going to go now to Julian Assange Vigil which was held outside the British Consulate in Melbourne. You may not be aware of it but it's at the top of uh, Collins Street, 90 uh, Collins Street and uh, there were some intrepid people who uh, uh, did a 24-hour vigil starting at 5pm on the 20th of February, right through to uh, the same time, but on the 21st of February. And this is to mark the uh, British uh, court system's review of the extradition uh, uh, of Julian Assange to America. Uh, I, as, as I said, I went down and I had a chat with uh, one of the people who spent the night there. There was a decision to do a 24-hour vigil. How's that gone? Because we're now at the tail end of that. Yeah, we, we, had, we had about 100 people here last night and eight of us slept over. Um, we were well looked after by about an equal number of police. Um, and yeah, we had a reasonably comfortable night, so we're pretty, we're pretty happy with it. And there's been lots of people, people stopping all the time to have a chat, to clarify things, to pick up like there's a lot of people buying t-shirts and um, Nils Meltzer's book and you know things like that. So a lot of people just don't get a lot of exposure to the factual information about Julian's case. So you get um, the, the mainstream media usually focuses on um, one new development. They usually you know will have an article, they'll have a bit of background and then they'll have like one element like uh, the parliamentarians last week for example. Right? But there was a lot of information that you don't get just by, you know, if you limit your reading to to that. So we're here. What they considered to be newsworthiness. Yeah. You know, what's the yeah. new thing about this particular That's event? That's exactly it. That's it. They, they just focus. They have a small focus, and and people are robbed of, you know, the the, the big picture, the facts of the of the story. This is a very complicated case. It says a lot about the lip service that Western governments play to international law. They talk about it a lot, but they don't actually walk the talk. The, the whole idea of a rules-based order, it's the biggest lie. I'm sorry, it's just the biggest lie. Julian has been held in, in detention in different ways, seven years in the Ecuadorian embassy, nearly five years now in Belmarsh hellhole. It is a hellhole. It is a maximum security prison. Um, there, there are terrorists. There are murderers in this prison. Um, it is not a remand prison. He's held in isolation 23 hours a day. Um, uh, officially, if you're held in isolation for two weeks, that constitutes torture. 
that's the definition of, you know, of, of torture. He's been held there for nearly five years. You know, they have double standards. He has no convictions, none. He he had a minor conviction for uh, breaking a, a they called it a, a bail violation in re in regards to the Swedish case. Now, in the Swedish case, no charges were ever laid. So he had a, a minor conviction for breaking a bail violation when no charges had ever been laid. And in fact, it was the British government telling the Swedish prosecutors to keep it going. The Swedish prosecutors wanted to end the case. It was the British telling them, no, don't end the case. Keep it open, keep it open. They kept it open for nine years. It's political. Uh, as they say, it needs a political solution. Exactly. I mean, uh, the English have not uh, covered themselves in glory. Uh, they stand uh, behind their legal system as being a very important exactly. uh, a, a pillar of their society. Yeah. Uh, but actually, there was a whole range of uh, terrible instances of uh, illegal kind, almost verging on illegal behaviour. No, illegal, I call them, they were yeah. illegal. Uh, I, I mean, they, they refused to even actually the, tell the person who was being charged with something what they were being charged with, yeah. and their lawyers didn't yeah. even read the, the briefs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th they went into the Ecuadorian embassy to drag Julian out. Now, tell, can you tell me another incident where that has happened? Where a, a government has gone into a foreign government embassy to make an arrest? Well, they, they had a security camera that was being uh, spied on by the CIA. That's, that's right, that's right. right. And, and they were party to it. The UK were party to it. They've paid out Jenny Robinson, the, the lawyer. You know, they've, they've owned up to the fact that they did this. Now, it is illegal. Sorry, it is illegal. You know, Have you heard anything about, because this is, uh, we're a day or the English are a day behind us. When yeah. do we hear what their uh, statements are going to be around this case? Yeah, so yesterday was the first day of the appeal and it was the defence. The defence put forward all their um, their case of... Because the, the, the charges against him are related to the uh, exposure of the um, US war crimes in Iraq where they bombed people and killed them when they should, you know, like it was quite clearly a war crime. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you, if you um, I assume from what you're saying that you've seen the collateral murder and I, I don't know anyone who has seen that video and been able to walk away without concluding that it was absolutely a murder. When you hear the voices of the people committing this, when they knew there were children in that van and they decided to bomb it. And they said, well, it's their bad luck for being there. Right? Um, you can see clearly this is a group of civilians walking yeah, around. Yeah, justifying by blaming the people that yeah. they're killing. That's, that's correct. It's a little bit of like the blame we're feeling. And, and what, makes it, what makes it even worse, look, we know in wartime and in war zones, soldiers commit heinous, terrible things. What makes this worse is that the generals lied about it. So Dean Yates, he, he was the, the Reuters um, bureau chief at the time. Who lost people. Yeah, he lost two of his reporters there. And when he asked the American generals about it, right, they said to him, I oh, know it was an engagement with a, you know, a violent group. There was, you know, there was no engagement with a violent group. They targeted clearly that there was they weren't getting fired on there was no fire there were no arms this was a group of civilians and and uh, reporters walking around and they knew there were children in that bus
So it, it is it is an unspeakable crime that the Americans tried to cover up. They lied about it. It was only three years after that when Julian released it that Dean Yates saw it for the first time. And that caused him, you know, he's described in, in his book, he's described the, the trauma it caused him knowing that, you know, they had lied about it and that he, he had believed that he felt responsible, you know, that, that he hadn't challenged their lies. Yeah. So, and so what, what Julian is being charged with is being a journalist. Being a journalist, that's right. They are, and and bear in mind that Obama, with with Biden as his deputy, is um, vice president. Vice president at the time, decided they could not charge Julian because of the American First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of the press. Right, and they put it aside. And it was only the next president, Mr. Trump. Um, together with Mike Pompeo, the CIA chief, vindictive, yeah, vindictive prosecution. prosecution. They they designed this and used a, a very old law that was never designed to be um, to prosecute um, journalists. It was the first time this law has ever been used um, against the journalist, right? And and that goes against basically everything, you know. So th this has. This is creating precedent in many ways. Also, the reach of America to to try, firstly, to to act uh, as to if they've got um, yeah, yeah. control over Global, every citizen right. in the world. Global jurisdiction. They have given themselves the right of global jurisdiction, and basically, they've said to the world, "You harm America, we're going to get you." And, and, we, and, we, uh, and we don't care what you do or say, we're going to get you. Yeah, and there was a briefing, the MEAA had a briefing on Friday that, and uh, Stella Assange was saying that if they give, uh, say, oh, we'll, par we'll pardon you, even then it, what they're saying is that he's actually done something wrong and that it has far-reaching effects on yes. public interest journalism across the world. Yeah, yeah. That we're no, just all patsies to yeah. the American war machine. Yeah, yeah. Now we've heard journalists say that since Julian's case, they will consider whether or not they are sub, you know, they can be subject to similar treatment. You know, that, that, that they would not automatically publish. So, democracy is at stake here. Let's not beat around the bush. When do we hear uh, the? Uh, well, well, there's one more day when. So the defence has presented their case yesterday, and in in Britain, so the next day is like today, but yeah. it's still a bit early. The difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the uh, prosecution, the Americans will put forward their case today. Now, whether or not the judge will make, or the judges, there's two judges, whether or not they will make uh, an immediate decision, it's probably unlikely. It's probably they will delay before they give their finding, is my guess, but look, oh, it's hard to no, say. We, no one knows. Yeah, I know, they've been very secretive and yeah. uh, they've also been very close-fisted uh, about uh, using administrative procedures to limit the amount of people yeah. who are actually yeah. witness yeah. this diabolical uh, 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 case, yeah. this diabolical case. No, um, this, where, this are you, where are you from? Who are I'm you with? From, uh, so, uh, my name's Con Pakavakis. I'm a member, a committee member of uh, Penn International Melbourne Centre. 
Um, I'm also with the No Orcus group and I'm a teacher by profession. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for talking to yeah, me and thanks pleasure. for staying out all night yeah, to raise pleasure. awareness. My, my pleasure. Let's hope for Julian yeah. and, and for justice. Yeah. Thank you. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. And this is the point where we go up rather than down because all the stories we've been talking about this morning have all been a bit bit on the uh, worrying side. But today we've got uh, two people in the studio, Kimber Thompson from Black Dot Gallery and Peter Clancy, who's an artist who's part of the uh, new exhibition that's on at the Cunahan Gallery, Gallery in Brunswick. Uh, called Future River when the when the past flows. Hello, you two. How are you? Good morning. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Good morning. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's fantastic exhibition that that's been put on. Um, first up, uh, Kimber, do you want to tell us a little bit about this collaboration Black Dot Gallery is having with the Cunahan Gallery and and everybody in sundry. Yeah, well, uh, Black Dot is homeless at the moment in a roundabout way, but Mary Beck is um, redeveloping the site that we have been occupying for the last several years and we will be coming back at the end of the year with a new gallery. So in between, we got a, I got approached by um, Photo24 to create an exhibition. As we said, we didn't have a home and at the same time, Cooningham was across the road and I have exhibited with them in the past and it was kind of a no-brainer being both in Marybeck that we, you know, collaborate together and bring this show together. I always say put your eggs in one basket and we can create something beautiful. Um, so no, yeah. Before you go on, uh, let listeners know about what Black Dock is actually about, what its core business is. Uh, Black Dot Gallery is a Indigenous gallery in Brunswick or First Nations of World Indigenous Cultures. We're first, first Peoples led, but we exhibit um, First Nations from around the world. Um, we've been up and running since 2011. We used to be in East Brunswick, then we got a home in Brunswick. Then we thought we we're homeless again, but we're going along for the next journey or the next phase of the site works that was existing out there. Yeah, okay. And uh, this particular exhibition, which is uh, at Coonahan, is um, quite a fascinating exploration of the past, present and the future, I guess. Oh, for sure. I think the... I'll tell you, yeah, a little bit for me about putting this show together was that Photo24 came to us with three overarching themes and then... Their actual festival now is um, their theme, the overarching theme of that is the future is shaped by those who can see it. Um, for me, looking when they gave us those themes, there was an in, 
indigenous box. I call the indigenous box and I hate being put in a box, you know, because when we look at those themes, we fit all of those past, present, future and, you know, we're using future technologies and stuff and then then we're identified within the program Indigenous and it's like, hello, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. But, you know, I, I took that on and, and we... I decided then that, you know, we'd look at the rivers and the creeks and um, and and look at water, I think, as our anchor and our, you know, our connection to country in that context. But, um, you know, f- we look at, you know, the rivers and the creeks that still flow and with them the Indigenous narratives that um, of the past that will naturally become our future rivers um, I got to work with some deadly artists, uh, one of them sitting here beside me, but um, we've got uh, Julie Goff from Tasmania, we've got Marie Clark here from Melbourne, we've got uh, Jodie Haynes um, who's doing our public art section of that and also we've got Peter Clancy who's in, in the room with us today. Um, and, you know, bringing these four artists together was just, you know, um, a beautiful journey for me in itself. Um, we're getting to work with four deadly women um, and, and myself. So I think some of my strongest shows are always uh, the women, the women, the powerhouses behind everything that we do. Um, and but also you, you uh, already pointed out that uh, you, your artists, you and your artists are dealing with lots of different methods and uh, uh, modern as well as uh, traditional ways of expressing Oh, for sure. I think the exhibition itself um, lends itself to that, where we we start off with um, Here Mary Mary Lies, which is Peter's show, which I'll let her talk about soon. And, you know, that starts us off on country in in Brunswick itself, in, in Mary Beck. So, that, the, oh, so, the f- so tell us, Peter, what's that all about? Tell us what, what you're doing. Yeah, so I've been working at um, Coburg Lake, which is on the Mary Creek. And yep. um, it's a place where I've been going for like, I've been living in the area for about 25 years. Um, but in my, my art practice, I'm really interested in exploring waterways and thinking about multiple ways of understanding the waterways. Um, and so in Future River, I've created a space um, that's all photographs that um, are taken at the Coburg Lake. So the Coburg Lake is actually, um, it runs along Mary Mary, which is um, Rocky Rocky, which is the Woiwurrung word language for the Mary, what we know as the Mary Creek. Oh, right. And okay. it was it's actually um, flooded. So there was a weir created um, out of the rocks from the Mary Creek. And it was created to create, uh, sorry, it was created for a swimming pool so that people could actually swim because kids had been drowning in in the Mary Creek. Um, But I was thinking about when the area, so when the Mary Mary was was flooded, all the stories that were kind of of covered over, all the Indigenous stories and history that are covered over by the water. Um, And So So what what you're saying is that the intervention of uh, uh, the Western uh, overlay has changed the nature of the waterways as well as uh, obscuring the actual stories of the land. Exactly, exactly. And um, 
But what I find really, really empowering and really fascinating about the way that you talk about the exhibition, Kimber, is that um, the waterways are, are still there mm. and so the power and the stories, the Indigenous power and the Indigenous stories are still there and they always will be. Mm. The water flows. Um, so, so basically with my practice I work with photography and I work with at one particular location. So I've worked um, on Jajaburang country exploring a massacre site um, that was that was a flooded waterway. Um, I've also worked recently um, for an exhibition at Tarawara and working at the the confluence of Brungalgook and the Birurung. Um, and I'm really interested in also working with historical photographs and... Um, so, so you do overlays, don't you? Yeah. So what I do is I, um, you know, think about the site and I before I take any photographs, I speak to um, elders. I, uh, so I sought permission from... So you get context. Yeah. So I sought permission from... Oh, so interesting. Go Auntie on. Gail and Auntie Julianne yeah. um, were under elders to ask if I can um, work in that location and you know ways of kind of talking about if if you know ways of talking about country because because it's a bit like doing an interview if you spend a long time with someone they'll incidentally tell you an incredible thing that you hadn't even thought to ask the question um working with the elders or working oh in general on country I yeah think. yeah yeah it's the same thing isn't it yeah definitely yeah. um you don't know what you don't know yeah, so um, I did, you know, quite a bit of kind of, you know, thinking about how just looking around and looking at photographs um, about the area and then just spending a lot of time there. Um, and so I take photographs with my film camera and then I print them quite large and then I take them back onto country to exactly the same location and I've got like a, a frame um, and that my husband Zane made. It's just one that you can kind of take apart. It's just made of conduit. And I set the frame up and put the photographs, stick the photographs onto the frame at exactly the same location that the original photographs were taken at, and then I cut into the photographs and then re-photograph them. So there's a couple of things where I'm I'm going back and talking to country and, and showing country photographs taken from my perspective and then when I create the photographs, um, the final photographs and print them, people have said to me they kind of look at them and they're looking at like landscape, country, um, and, you know, they kind of recognise what they're looking at, even if they don't know their exact location. But there's something that's not quite right about them because, you know, part of it's in focus, part of it's not, and there's this I'm kind of covering over a part so, of country so you, or peeling a part uh, of country yeah, yeah. away. So, so are you uh, getting the um, person who's looking to reevaluate and to reconsider what they think they know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, because there's multiple ways of, of understanding and perceiving perceiving country. And, and I'm really interested in photography and thinking about how, um, you know, the complex relationship that we have with photography photographs of country um you know historically in australia 
and because there's this thing about uh, what is it that the way photographs you actually have it in the notes here about photographs that westerners take are all about possession well n- not everyone but, but yeah, the sorry. photographs that i've looked the, at the, the older they did they i mean it's not intentional it's just a cultural overlay really isn't it it's about yeah it's, it's kind not of about you're saying they're bad people i'm just saying extractive and yeah, yeah. um so as an example like we've got some that um we've kindly borrowed from the coburg historical society we've got um some postcards of the same location yeah. that i worked at and so um basically photographs were taken of you know the landscape in inverted comments um yeah the same site and then the photographs were turned into postcards yes. which are objects to be held that's right yeah and so that's kind of like yeah it, a really good example of the way you know western perceptions of of landscape is you know what can i get out of that you know how many sheep can i put there you know um it's not an indigenous perspective yeah you you were saying that the waterways that you were looking at actually connect to elizabeth street um so oh, with a gallery is in it? kind of in kind of a roundabout way so when kimber and i so i was doing kind of lots of research and looking at images um historical images but i found some images taken in the 1970s um press images i can't remember who the photographer was and um it's of elizabeth street which is um the, the continuation di- of sydney road where the gallery yeah. is and we were looking out the window and i said oh kimber you know, down the road is Elizabeth Street and that's actually built on a river, on yeah. a waterway. And so that's there's lots of flooding. Flow. That's why it's got the flow. Yeah. It, it actually does feel like it's part of a river. Yeah. And so there's been lots of flooding there. Like in these mm. photographs, there's people standing on, on the benches because there's there's flooding. And and um, also the Birrarung flooded a lot which yeah. is um, at the end of this waterway. And so then we talked about, like in the exhibition, there's a photograph that's printed onto a transparent film and um, or translucent film, and um, that's how we came up with that idea or Kimber mm. came up with that idea because we were talking about the water flowing, you know. It's all, if you think about the subterranean waterways, like it's all going to come back. Mm. So what you're really doing is sketching for us an introduction into how the city has overlaid the natural world mm, i think and and getting us thinking about blockages yeah you know? that's really fascinating and and if we're in that um you know the environment at the moment we've got floods fires and that and you know all of these natural waterways have been obstructed in some way and now we've got you know, things happening yeah, because of it. Because of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's an interesting once we started kind of talking amongst ourselves, like I had individual conversations with all of the artists and I don't even think, the artists didn't even know each other's work until we actually got into the space, which was kind of beautiful once everyone was in the space, you know. And then we looked between the gallery and just seen this natural flow of storytelling, yeah, that, it's that fantastic. Joins. Yeah. It's absolutely fantastic. This this exhibition runs till April, doesn't it? 
Yes, yes. So it's part of the um, – we've opened a little bit early just because of the programming at Kooninghan, but it's part of the International Photographic Festival, which starts from the 1st to the 24th of March, and then we've got that extension afterwards, yeah. Yeah, and there's also a couple of other things because, uh, Peter, you're only one of the artists. I mean, you're, this is fascinating, your your – uh, what you're talking about? Imagine what the you know the other four have got to contribute. Um, so this this particular uh, exhibition also includes on women uh, International Women's Day um, uh, some events, and then there's also some talks and readings later on on the 16th of March. Yeah, for sure. So International Women's Day, I thought that was a great opportunity since we've got such a great strong um, women's show in particular we we're also um, partnering with next wave festival the young women's program there he'll be curating the night and one of the young artists mags will be um, starting us off in the gallery and responding to the space and to each room oh that's fantastic and then taking us on a journey to the outdoor area which is jody haynes's public artwork that are all on display on big photo boards and will take us across the road to the Mechanics Institute where we will also be um, another artist, a performing artist, what's her name, sorry? Oh, quick, Acel, um, who will then respond to Jodie's work on the opposite side of the corner. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and Jodie's works will also have some video works in the windows as well as the big public display. And we also will have a DJ, Sovereign Black Pussy. Yes. Oh, <laughs> DJing, so you know it's it's a, a, a collaboration with Brunswick Music Festival and Next Wave. Um, I think you know just working in community there it was just made sense to me to bring on community to create these events and make everybody part of it. You know, in the bigger picture, Brunswick Music Festival's been great. We've also got our Black Dot Artist Market coming up with the um, Brunswick Music Festival next Sunday, the third. That's right. Yep, and then we've got yeah Future River International Women's Day on the eighth, and then on the sixteenth we'll have artist talks and readings within the gallery space with um, four of our artists. Oh, and Jacali Romanis as well. So we're inviting another artist who's exhibiting in the area as well. Another young woman. Yeah. Th- oh, it just sounds great. Thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about all this. It's just fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Brunswick Music Festival presents Sydney Road Street Party, Sunday, March the 3rd from 12pm. Over 90 artists performing on one massive day. Catch, Bench Press, Billiam and the Split Bills, Bumpy, Charlie Needs Braces, Chick Chicka, Merpire, Michael Beach, Al Carlson, Pauper Spit, Teether and Kuya Neal, Yorinda and heaps more. Plus, markets, community stalls and parties happening all along Sydney Road. More info at brunswickmusicfestival.com.au Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when the killing, the genocide continues with the United States while urging restraint, approving more weapons to maintain the slaughter and vetoing a motion calling for a ceasefire, a ceasefire supported by 13 of the other 14 Security Council members with our mother country abstaining. 
Meanwhile, at Melbourne Town Hall, the Council joined Joe Biden and the Americans in rejecting a ceasefire. And as the World Court hears a case against Zionist occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, Israel refuses to acknowledge the court and repeats its assertion that the occupied territories are disputed territories, thereby acknowledging in this case that the Palestinian people have no land whatever, that 100% of the land from which the Palestinians were violently evicted by Zionism, terrorism backed by the Western powers is Israeli plus the Golan Heights in Jordan, which it occupies. Now also a week when the significance, name also the danger of one small boat landing on the western Trublawasi coastline with desperate asylum seekers wading through mangroves, didn't strike us until the threat these people posed to our national security was revealed by caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo Constable Peter Duffer. Anthony Albing Uzi has, you know, like, lost control of our, like, borders? A concerned Pete alerted us. People smugglers recognise weakness when, like, they, you know, see it? Worse, 39 people wading ashore through mangroves represented a catastrophic failure. Catastrophic, like, you know, failure, Pete avoided confected hyperbole. Big Supremo Anthony, weak, weak, lost control of our borders. Anthony accused Pete in turn of making refugees a political issue, like refugees, asylum seekers, no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people are not a political issue and have not been a political issue for years. Making, assuring us, the socialist policy on Operation Sovereign Borders, because this is war, listen, a war, Operation Sovereign Borders policy had not changed. It was identical to Pete's policy introduced by the coalition. Pete and the team, and supported by the socialists, not that that stops Pete and the team accusing the socialists of being weak on the issue by having an identical policy. Uh, yes, what is your policy based on Anthony? Ah, uh, well, well, cruelty, oh, and a giant, a giant serve of gutlessness. Thus the desperates have been packed off to Nauru, locked up indefinitely to enjoy the delights of a Pacific island. Extraordinary Myopia by the ABC brekkie presenter a couple of weeks ago, interviewing New Zealand political survivor and chameleon Winston Peters, aggressively accusing New Zealand of not taking enough locked-up-for-life asylum seekers from Trublawasi. Now, I won't say Peters was too nice to state the obvious, because I'm not sure he is that nice, but can't believe he didn't point out the hypocrisy of the presenter's argument, like... We're only taking them because you won't, because we don't believe in locking up desperate people indefinitely. The presenter obviously agrees with Anthony and Pete that refugees in Trublawasi are not Trublawasi's responsibility. Except those who land by plane, which makes them good refugees. Proper papers, not queue-jumping, legal aeroplane people. Pete has been a lot less vocal over a report into crooks ripping off trillions in contracts to administer the cruelty to no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people under his watch. When I say a lot less vocal, not a word. Like, you know, uh, and that's a lot less vocal.
Anthony's socialist courage also to the fore, as amid a bevy of inquiries into the supermarket duopoly, he ruled out one of the biggest threats to their retail hegemony, forcing them to dissemble. They must be shaking in their Italian leather boots, as Anthony said, government should not have undue control over the market. Sure, sure, because hasn't the market worked a treat? In other words, over the very problem behind the inquiries. Thus, amid the odd suggestion our duopoly is ripping us off, Woolworth's trillion supremo, Brad Banducci, counted that he was focusing on value. And what's your idea of value, Brad? Well, top of the list is my obscenely inflated multi-million salary package. Uh, that, that, that's real value. Sure, sure, but, but anything else? Uh, no, top of the head, can't think of anything else. No, no, that'll do. I went to ask Brad another question, but he stormed out and then resigned altogether. Won't he be missed? Also missing, in fact, well from public scrutiny anyway, a report commissioned by PWC, Profits with Crooks, from an international law firm which exonerated international partners from profiting from the tax leak scandal involving profits from crooks. It's privileged legal advice. Yet a Senate inquiry and a Senate committee and authorities like the regulator still want to see it. Good grief. Don't they trust profits from crooks to tell us the truth? They say their people were exonerated. Uh, by yourselves. Oh, that's right. And isn't that good enough? Workers took to the streets not in protest but in a wild bacchanalian celebration after learning wages had increased by a fabulous 0.9% in the December quarter. And it's all right for them, but what about their poor caring employers? What about the shareholders who have to pay that? Who'd be an employer? The biggest annual rise in years, which says something about the years, but the danger was put into perspective by our old mate, Innes Will Cost, the workers of the Trublawazi Industry Profits Group. That 0.9% could stuff up the fight against inflation. Leading the ACTU out-of-control Secretary Sally McManus to counter Innes's wise words with, they want workers to pay for the fight against inflation. The evil unions, as I said, are out of control. And the big Aussie, BHP, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, was also upset. But let's paint the background. A classic and necessary case of capitalise the profits and socialise the losses. See, Indonesia in other people's business has gone from producing a small percentage to almost half the nickel in the world and processing it with Chinese capital, its new supremo, the war criminal, vowing to continue this development, the result being prices for true blue Aussie nickel with bloody huge and twitty forest among the big producers have plummeted. So to save thousands of jobs, it's obvious the governments, federal and western true blue Aussie, must come to the rescue, and they have, with tax credits and slashing royalties announced in western true blue Aussie this week. Amazing what impact a bunch of marginal seats can have. See, socialise your losses. Forget the small fact that other branches of these corporations are making trillions and 
capitalise your profits. We all recall the furor when government suggested obscene profits tax when prices go the other way and they make obscene profits from our resources. Government greed, an attack on freedom. But that's not all upsetting bloody huge, the big true blue Aussie. Thank you, public purse, but the tax credit may not be enough to save the nickel division. No, the government must fix the crippling, caring business class relations system, especially same job, same pay. How can bloody huge survive if it has to pay its labour hire workers, its very own labour hire company, the same pay for the same work as its other workers? How? It would cost it billions. Which the simple-minded like, well, like me, I have to admit, might think is the amount they are ripping off their labour hire workers. And Rio Tato, the planet, Supremo Jacob Stashholm, the profits, said the business class relations changes scare us. It could reduce the $8 billion profit it made from its iron ore. Poor Rio Tato. Uh, why does it scare you, Jacob? Well, clearly, multi-employer workplace agreements and same job, same pay pose a threat to our relationship with the workers we so care about as we attempt to circumvent the new legislation. It, it could lead to industrial disputes. If only the evil unions would realise there's no such thing as class struggle. And yet, economists this week predicted households will face, quote, income pain for at least another three years, despite that windfall 0.9% massive wage increase, leaving us to ponder what households are doing with all that money. Big-hearted fossil Santos us the profits, celebrating that oh-so-wise judgment by her honour that gas and methane profits and pollution are far more important than Tiwi Island traditional beliefs, has shown its genuine care for the Tiwi Islanders by offering to provide them with about $100 million over the 20-year life of the offshore polluter, a whole spectacularly generous $5 million a year despite announcing a mere $2.2 billion profit. And to extend the hand of friendship, its genuine care for the Tiwi Island people, if not for their environment, Big Supremo Kevin Gallagher-Hordes the Wealth announced Santos us is still considering pursuing the Islanders for costs, which should make a mess of the five mil a year before it gets going, if it ever gets going. In the Timing Couldn't Be Worse department, full-page Lord Rupert of Wapping Sid ad, Albo's new vape ban won't work, will hurt. No, no, we need to regulate and not ban. Ad inserted by the Troubler was he Taxpayers Alliance, spreading their wings a bit, and we can be sure there'd be no tobacco industry money involved, but the Timing Couldn't Be Worse bit, same-day news item. Every school principal in, in Troubloise will receive anti-vaping support from federal and state governments to combat the rising epidemic among children and teens. What rotten timing. But while the fun police threaten the profitability of the tobacco killing industry, the life of fun, fun, fun continues in Afghanistan, where the good old Taliban has banned taking pictures and videos of living things, including television footage of living things, which I thought might just limit impact or the impact and variety of teleprograms a fair bit. In fact, the mind boggles at what they can show.
In Russia, yet another opponent of Vladimir Putin the poison suffered that dissident pandemic sudden death syndrome. While finally, that bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, the US of the UN of the US of the world, told a London court its relentless pursuit of Julian Assange, its desire to lock him up for 175 years, has nothing to do with politics, is not political. Apparently, exposure of US of war crimes has nothing to do with it. Hang on, but I've had this great idea. I'm going to ring our Minister for Train Killers and being offensive, Richard Moore's the bad guys. Richard, I'll say, tell the US of will cancel the 38 mil a day Fawkes deal if they continue their persecution. I'm sure he'd agree, because we all admire the socialist courage. Good morning. Yes, the socialist courage of our present federal government. Thank you very much, Kevin Healy, for This Is The Week That Was. We're going to go straight down to uh, the rally that was held on the 17th, that's the Saturday, last Saturday, uh, to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the death of T.J. Hickey. It was a general gathering to discuss deaths in custody, call for its end, call for the... uh, End of police investigating police. We're going to hear from Alison Thorne and a few of the stories behind the statistics to end up the program this week. Our second last speaker today is Alison Thorne. Alison is a founding member of the Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne. She is widely published on what it will take to hold police accountable and has been organising to stop First Nations deaths in custody since before the Royal Commission in 1991. Alison's going to discuss the demands necessary to stop deaths in custody, including recommendations from the Royal Commission that remain unimplemented more than 30 years on. Can we give a warm welcome to Alison, please? Thank you. I too acknowledge that I'm standing on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation. I'm inspired um, by Kieran's call to be an accomplice and I think all of us within the Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne will pledge to continue to be accomplices. On this 20th anniversary of the death of TJ Hickey, East Melbourne stands in solidarity with Gail Hickey and with all deaths in custody families. Grief runs deep. Gail and every other person who's lost a loved one in custody bravely and tenaciously continue the fight for justice. They are the backbone of this movement and we salute you. As you've heard, one of the things that Gail Hickey is campaigning for is to publicly display a truthful plaque to honour the memory of TJ. Gail absolutely refuses to change the wording on the plaque and erase the truth of how TJ died. His death simply cannot be described as an accident. If he had not been racially profiled and chased by Redfern police, And if TJ had not spent much of his young life being subjected to police harassment, 
TJ may still have been with us today. ISJA Melbourne formed in the lead up to the first anniversary of the death of TJ in response to an appeal from Gail Hickey and the late Ray Jackson, a remarkable Wiradjuri warrior and campaigner who was fighting to permanently end deaths in custody. Ray Jackson knew what we were up against and what it would take to achieve this goal. He wrote, quote, the relationship between capital, power and the police is historically known. The police are there to protect the establishment. They are its frontline forces, end quote. Ray was right, indeed they are. ISJA Melbourne understands that the police force, an institution which uses racism and colonialism as brutal tools, is there to protect the interests of the ruling class. What it will take to stop deaths in custody for good is to dismantle this system, which is based on exploitation and the dispossession of First Nations. But deaths in custody continue to happen. So while we fight to get rid of this whole rotten system, we also need to fight for immediate demands as well. In just two months' time, it will be 33 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody made its recommendations. Think about that, 33 long years. And those recommendations include recommendations 87 and 92, which would make imprisonment a sanction of absolute last resort. Incarceration statistics highlight why these recommendations are so damn crucial. 33% of people in prison are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, while First Nations people comprise only 3% of the population, courtesy of genocide. But instead of looking at ways to avoid locking people up, as we've heard from other speakers, all around the country, governments respond to incidents by going on law and order rampages. This is how we got Victoria's tough bail laws with their presumption against bail. And in the state of Queensland, the government has gone so far as to recently suspend human rights protections for some children. There is one justice for the rich and powerful and another for black, indigenous, people of colour and the poor. This month, Senator Lydia Thorpe asked the government when it will finally remove hanging points from prison cells, things like protruding shower heads and curtain fixtures. This is crucial because, as Kieran has explained, most people who die by suicide in prison do so due to hanging. Even many of the absolute 
simplest recommendations like this one, things that would actually save lives, have still not been implemented after more than three decades. What we demand is the implementation of all, all 339 recommendations in every jurisdiction, and we demand it now. The failure to do so after 33 years shows the brutal indifference of the capitalist state, and it is a racist disgrace. The second immediate demand that we raise is for community control of the police. We support the call for bodies with real powers that are elected and directly accountable to the community. And I'd like to quote Ray Jackson again. Writing in the Freedom Socialist Bulletin, he said, quote, the police must be under community control, not the other way around. ISJA has argued since the early 90s that the power of police to investigate themselves must be taken away. What must be put in place is an independent investigative team involving Aboriginal people and other minorities. There must be attached to this a civilian review panel to make sure that the police role is absolutely transparent and that there is no chance of a cover-up. As long as police have these powers, we will never get to the truth about the deaths and other wrongs that happen in police custody, Aboriginal, Islander, Asian or white." End quote. Wise words indeed from Ray Jackson. As is the case with so many deaths in custody, after TJ's death, police investigators spectacularly failed to collect vital evidence, as we heard from Cheryl. Police investigators are not interested in finding the truth. What their role is, is to protect their mates. And we say shame. Charges are rarely laid, and when they are, what happens? The coppers walk free. The fact that Senior Sergeant Chris Hurley, killer of Mulringi Dumaji and an absolute serial thug, served 29 years in the Queensland Police Force before he finally got caught out for assaulting a motorist on the Gold Coast. That's ample proof of this. Five police officers were acquitted of the manslaughter of John Pat, a 16-year-old Aboriginal boy whose death in a Roeburn police cell in 1983 was instrumental in sparking the Royal Commission. These five coppers were drunk and off duty when they assaulted the teenager and they walked free. The WA police officer who shot and killed JC, a 29-year-old Yamachi mum in Geraldton, was found not guilty by an all-white jury. Shame. While cop Zachary Rolfe was also acquitted of the fatal shooting of 19-year-old Kumanjai Walker in Uendamu. Walpuri elder Ned Hargraves 
has called for the police to be disarmed and made accountable to the Uendamu community. And he argues it is wrong that, quote, unarmed locals of tens of thousands of years are under the constant surveillance of settler officers with guns on their own lands. Every example where police are involved in a death in custody is a stark reminder that we simply cannot rely on police to investigate themselves. We need to continue advocating for independent community control bodies with real powers to hold police accountable. The ongoing passage of years will not dampen our passion for justice and we will not stop until we have answers, until all the uniform killers are held to account, and until the genocidal deaths in custody stop. We will keep fighting for a world where no parent has to bury their child under such tragic circumstances in the way that so many First Nations parents continue to have to do. Let's end with a chant that is raised each year at the commemoration in Redfern. They say accident, we say murder. They say accident, we say murder. They say accident, we say murder. And one more, justice for TJ, we're not going away. Justice for TJ, we're not going away. Justice for TJ, we're not going away. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alison. We have one more speaker on the schedule uh, today, Robbie Thorpe, who's still on his way down from camp. Um, so we're going to proceed on now um, with uh, the reading of some tribute placards uh, for a small number of the 558 First Nations people who have been killed by police or corrections custody uh, before we have a minute's silence for them and their families. In this time, we're going to have a bit of an open platform afterward. Uh, if you would like to come up and say anything at all, please come and speak to me um, during this moment. Um, I'm now going to invite people to come up and, and read those. John Pat, Death in Custody, 28 September 1983. On 28 September 1983, John Pat, a 16-year-old Yinjibarnji youth, tried to rescue his friend Ashley James from a brawl with a drunken off-duty cop. Because John tried to pull him out of the sway of fists from the cop, who had chased down Ashley, having earlier said to Ashley, I'll get you, you black cunt. John Pat was bashed, his aorta torn, striking his head on the road, then kicked in the head and face. Shame! He was arrested, tossed, it was said by a witness, by a witness, like a dead kangaroo into the back of a police van and taken to the lockup. Shame! Where he died soon after of closed head injuries, it was said, in a juvenile police cell. In that cell, coppers did the obviously wrong thing. They washed down his dead body and changed his clothes 
before investigators viewed his body. Shame. Shame. That day, outside the Roburn Hotel, five off-duty, inebriated cops laid into Aboriginal youth, and three years later, the police union lawyer, John Quigley, later a parliamentarian, got them off with the help of an all-white jury. Shame. Shame! John Pat was bashed to death. John Pat will never be forgotten. Stop death in custody now. Wayne Fella Morrison, death in custody, 26 September 2016. 29-year-old Wiradjuri Kakafa man, Wayne Fella Morrison, 29, died in September 2016 after being restrained and placed face down in the prison van at Yatala Labor Prison in Adelaide's North. Mr Morrison was restrained after allegedly attacking officers at the prison while he was on remand awaiting a home detention bail hearing. In the opening day of the inquest, CCTV footage was played showing a group of officers restraining Mr Morrison, placing him in the van and transporting him to another area of the prison before he was pulled out of the vehicle blue and unresponsive some three minutes later. Shame! Shame. Though we'll leave that there. Um, very disturbing stories, I'll have to say. Uh, and uh, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this uh, week. Uh, we will go out with a uh, lovely song called The River Song by Archie Roach and Titus. And this is in uh, tribute to the exhibition that's going on at Coonahan Gallery in Brunswick, Future River, When the Past Flows. Get down there and... Uh, find out more about uh, your past and our future. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Billy brewing up the tea Smoke it's up my nose The river's flowing endlessly Yeah, on and on it goes And the river's full of clouds today So is the sky But the sun is trying to make its way To you and I yeah, I see reflections on the water Of eucalyptus I am this country's daughter And I know this I shall Until the end of my wandering 
white bird sitting on a limb From the water shining black And every time I looked at him I'd seen that he looked bad Kookaburra starts to lie Somewhere in the trees And the river's like a looking glass And I need more days like these Where I see reflections on the water Of eucalyptus And I am this country's daughter And I know this I shall return I time again Until the end My wondering yeah. Yeah. I shall speaks to me The river fills my cup She talks of how it used to be Beneath the Padura Yeah, I see reflections on the water I'm good You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.